Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 275 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we are into the throes of summer. If you're listening in real time, and what do you like to do in the summer? You know what? This is, I'm seeing a pattern here. I'm uh, writing a book. Yeah, my next book, which comes out in the fall of 2020. And uh, I'm working on that right now. So I don't know what you're doing, but I love summer because the rhythms are so different. They're just different. And uh, I exercise a little bit more. We socialize a little bit more. And my podcast binging goes way up. So Hey, if you're brand new to this podcast, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, if you really enjoy today, subscribe. Uh, in fact, I only listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. And uh, I use the Overcast app. People ask me, what app do you use to listen? Yeah, sometimes Apple Podcasts, but usually the Overcast app. And then you can create playlists. And I do this one called a ride queue. And I just like dump some episodes into my ride queue. And then I head out for an hour or two hours on my bike and listen at 1.5 speed. That's my usual speed. Sometimes you have to slow down a bit. I know some of you listen at 2x, but anyway. Hey, just a little bit about summer, my all-time favorite season. And I hope it finds you well. Speaking of summer... How do you find self-control in the summer? That's one of the things I'm talking to Drew Dick about. He's the former editor of Christianity Today. He's an author and currently the acquisitions editor at Moody Publishers. We talk about how publishing is changing and we go way back. So for those of you who are in professional ministry, you may remember Leadership Journal. It was something I got as a young leader and I loved it. And we talk about like curated content, how the internet is changing everything when it comes to the way that we consume content, like for example, this podcast or the blog I write or any of that stuff. It's a fascinating conversation. So Drew Dick is my guest today. I think you're going to love it. And we do talk about willpower and then the massive changes in journalism and online content, which I think is a fascinating conversation. And while we're on the subject of summer, do you find your attendance usually takes a little bit of a dip or sometimes a dive in the summer? Almost every church leader I know does. Well, here's something fascinating. Dick Chapman is a senior pastor and for the first time in over 20 years, they grew last summer. And he and the elders of the church were shocked and they're like, okay, what's different? What changed? Uh, they made a few internal changes that were necessary, but they knew that those were ones that didn't bring in new visitors. So the one thing they did different was they invested in ProMedia Fire. They actually retained them and they used to have like old outdated graphics and videos. And ProMedia Fire created a professional sermon series for them for the summer, social graphics and advertisements that they just released. And for the first time, they invested in professional custom graphic design and video with ProMedia Fire. They experienced 15% church growth in the usual downtime of summer services. So if you're thinking you need some fire 
for your social content, check out Promedia Fire. Listeners of this podcast, because we love you guys, and so does Promedia Fire, receive 10% off of their plans for life. So to realize that, go to promediafire.com forward slash carry. That's promediafire.com forward slash carry. And uh, yeah, I know it's summer, but the fall is going to be here. And we have talked about trained up dozens of times, and it's important for you to get ready for the fall, the whole deal. But over the last couple of years, thousands of ministry leaders have trained tens of thousands of volunteers through Trained Up. That's a huge increase in high-impact volunteers ready to serve. Well, there's been some exciting news from ServeHQ because not only can they help you train your volunteers, they've launched a new ministry communication tool called Huddle Up. And one of the challenges in the summer is trying to even, you know, talk to people. It's like people aren't opening their emails. People are like offline. And it's the first ever communication tool built specifically for ministry leaders to communicate with volunteers, get this, parents and students in one easy to use tool. You get an easy place to send out weekly updates, build community with your team and make sure everyone's on the same page. Cool thing is that your team members don't even need to download another app. Yeah. You want to learn some more? Head on over to servehq.church and check out Huddle Up for free for 14 days. You get full access to the tool plus personal support from the ServeHQ team. So head on over to servehq.church and check out Huddle Up for free and you can communicate with your team in the disparate times of summer. Well, without much further ado, let's dive into my, I think, really fascinating conversation, particularly loved uh, when we were talking about curated versus non-curated content. I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say in the comments to the show notes, which you can find at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 275. But here's my conversation with Drew Dick. Well, Drew, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. At the outset here, I just want to tout my Canadian credentials, Okay. Yeah, you're Canadian. I'm Canadian. I grew up in Red Deer, Alberta. And um, I've been south of the border, though, for about 18 years. Mm -hmm. And so when I go home, I'm very suspect. Uh, One of my buddies uh, from Red Deer told me last time I was there that I sound like a southern politician now. I've been in the (laughs) States too long. (laughs) Somebody told me recently that even though, I mean, I'm coming to you north of Toronto, Canada, like right now, but they say you kind of lost your Canadian accent. I'm like, I didn't think I ever had one. Well, yeah, here's the thing. Out there, you guys don't have as strong well, an accent you. as, say, in the West. So, yeah. We sound <laughs> a lot like we sound a lot like California. I think so. Say. Yeah. A little less surfer dude, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> a little less surfer dude. But you've been uh, living and working in the U.S. for years. And you've been in journalism, which is fascinating. That's always been one of my alternate careers. You know, if it all falls apart. And I know it pays well these years to be in journalism. So that, oh, so much money. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, and most recently at Moody Publishing. But I want to go back a few years uh, when you were at Leadership Journal. And anybody who is probably over 35 remembers Leadership Journal. And I remember as a young pastor in my early 30s and the late 90s, like subscribing to Leadership Journal and getting the actual journal shipped to my house and yes. this is like early days of the internet, and uh, it was it was just gold for me. I read the whole thing from cover to cover and subscribed to it for many years. Uh, so much has changed, though. Leadership journal Absolutely. isn't in production anymore. I mean, print has gone the way of the dinosaur for the most part. I want to start by talking about the change in the publishing world 
And I'd love you to take us back in some of the, the massive transition that you watched happen over the last 10, 15 years in journalism. Yes, sure. Yeah, going back to yeah, 10, 15 years, we lived in this magical time where people uh, read these things called newspapers and uh-huh. magazines. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, of course. Some people still definitely, uh, including myself, read some print publications, um, but far less than used to. Uh, and so, yeah, I edited Leadership Journal for years. It was an awesome experience. Yeah, to have guys coming up to me all the time and going, I've got a whole stack of the journals in my my office. I use them as kind of a library for reference. Of course, the the favorite peop, um, thing that people had about those was the cartoons, right? Yeah, it's yeah like the cartoons York, were great. You flip through, you find the cartoons, right? It's like the New um, Yorker. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit, right? And And mainly for pastors and other leaders. Um, and so it was a great experience, but yeah, around, um, 2013, 14, things started to get tight. Uh, the, the circulation started to drop and, and what happened there, it's, it, I won't get too much into the weeds of the economics. Uh, and this is an industry wide thing, you know, from, oh, yeah. from no, it's leadership journals to the day. New York times, right. Um, as people transitioned online, what happened is a lot of advertisers left the the print publications putting ads in there they started to go to banner ads and even pop-up ads which they did not pay as much for and so it became hard to sustain publications just on subscription money alone and that never paid all the bills okay so your 15 bucks a year just didn't cut it no it didn't cut it people think well i'm paying for this well yeah you are but the advertising is a big part of that as well so anyway what's happened is that no one has really cracked that nut of how to monetize content online. And I'm just as guilty as the next guy. Cause if I go to CNN tomorrow or Fox news or whatever it is, and they're, they're saying, Hey, pay me 10 bucks a month. Sorry. Next site. Right. It's mm-hmm. just difficult uh, to, to make it work. And so the, the way things have kind of gone, including at, at Christianity day, I still have a small role there as a contributing editor. Uh, it's now ctpastors.com is, is what leadership journal used to be. Um, what what's happened is we've had to get creative about funding, right? So it's it's some advertising, but it's also some grants, and and a lot of journalistic enterprises are turning to philanthropic organizations to that care about good journalism to sustain mm-hmm. them. And so yes, the landscape has radically changed, um, and yet I think the important thing is you know to still be out there engaging readers with good journalism, great content. Um, and it's really an exciting time in a way because it's the Wild West, man. And, and, and you know this better than mm-hmm. anyone. You can go directly to readers um, if you have a good message and, and something that will resonate. Well, it's, it's really interesting, too, because I, I don't know. I don't want to make predictions, but I miss well-curated content. And that's, oh, yeah. what, that's what Leadership Journal was. Like you knew – that when you subscribe to that, or if you subscribe to Time Magazine or McLean's in Canada or something like that, or Newsweek, pick your poison. And there's arguments still, like in New York, about the Atlantic or the the New Yorker. Um, you know, this is curated content. These are people who have um, opinions or research or credentials, and they've done their work. And I mean, I remember reading John Ortberg. You know, never knowing that I would be able to interview him one day, but you know, back in the day when he was teaching pastor at Willow, and he would have something really provocative to say about X, and then you know, Lyle Schaller would have something else to say about Y, and it was it was that idea of curated content. And I think, you know, sometimes I think about even my playlist now on Spotify. I don't know what to listen to because the choice is infinite. 
And <laughs> right, too many options. There's too many options. And I don't understand exactly how, how Spotify's algorithms work. But when I subscribe to a new playlist, I think all it does is it automatically generates the stuff that I've already listened to because otherwise the odds of it being... So we almost live in this echo chamber now where you just find more of what you already like rather than someone's thoughtful, intelligent opinion about what are the issues that are shaping the day. Can you talk to us about that like as from your yeah. perspective as an editor? Well, I think you put your finger on a real problem and that is the echo chamber effect, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the new editors are your friends. That's who's curating the content. So you go right. on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and the articles, the ideas, the opinions that you that you consume are filtered to you through your friends or through targeted ads or whatever else, right? Which are just trying to anticipate your preferences. And so often what you don't get is that, like you said, that curated content from kind of a wise and trusted source that is going to edify you, challenge you, equip you. Um, and so that's the danger. At the same time, I just think we're living in a time where information has to be mediated by personality, right? Mm-hmm. So I think people are sus- suspicious of institutions that are going to curate that content for you. And they're turning to different personalities. And that's not all bad. And the, and the organizations, I think, that are thriving in this climate um, are the ones that have managed to collect this kind of pantheon of personalities that people connect to and trust, right? So if you think of uh, of CNN, you think of, I don't know, Don Lemon, you think of Anderson Cooper, if you think of Fox News, you think of Sean Hannity, there are personalities associated with the the media companies that are succeeding in this time, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's okay if if those personalities are doing that work of curation and and challenging you as well as uh, giving you the content that you want. But I think one of the things that's changed, Drew, and, and I'd love your your take on this, is so much of it feels so tribal. You're either Fox News or CNN, or you're right. progressive, or you're super conservative, or whatever. I mean, put, go go back a decade in time, and obviously as a human being, you've got a slant, right, as an editor, for leadership journal, but it never, it never felt tribal. Christianity today mm. didn't feel tribal. Leadership journal didn't feel tribal. There were a variety of perspectives from the slight left to the slight right that, that were in the journal and talk about that as an editor. Yeah, no. And that's one of the things we prided ourselves. Thank you. I'm glad you picked up on that at Leadership Journal was being sort of that big tent generalist mentality, right? Not that we didn't have convictions, but we wanted to keep the tent as wide as possible. Um, And it's getting increasingly difficult to do that. I'm speaking, of course, from my context as an evangelical, right, Mm -hmm. where it has been incredibly fractured and tribalized. To the point where people say, you know, I don't want to really learn how to preach from you or lead a meeting until you check off these theological commitments right. and we can see that we're on the same page. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly uh, it's a, what you mean. It's, it's a like little I can't crazy. even listen to you until I know that you. I agree with you. Yes, yes. Where are you mm-hmm. on women in ministry? What are your eschatological opinions? What you know, all these things. I'm not saying they're unimportant, um, but people, yeah, they they, they kind of get stuck in this mentality where I'll only learn from people in my tribe, and I think that's destructive. And I think it's actually something that is exacerbated by the internet, like we were talking about, where you can get stuck in those echo chambers and you don't have to break out. So I am grateful for any voices, publications that are that are challenging that trying to establish sort of a big tent mentality and teach and speak to people across the different tribes. 
Well, I, I, I'm fundamentally convicted there's far more that unites us as human beings, but also as Christians than divides us. I just believe that, 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 that there's far more common ground than divisive ground. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's also exacerbated by the fact my team was telling me today, we had our, our weekly staff meeting, and someone said, did you read about the Instagram um, algorithm change? And I mean, they're changing it every week. And I'm like, no, well, apparently... You know, I follow, I don't know, 800 people or something like that. But if I haven't interacted with your content, if I follow you, it will just automatically drop you and give me right. more of anything that I've already interacted with. And I'm like, no, I miss the days when you used to see everybody you followed on Instagram. I, I remember <laughs> right. when Twitter was chronological, right? Like you, yes. would, you would go back and you would catch up for 20 minutes on everything you missed. And now somebody who is not you decides what you're going to hear and they think they're helping you by giving more of what you want and your preferences. But to me, it makes it worse, not better. And I wonder yep. in journalism, like just, just speak to that for a minute. Like, yeah. why do you think it's important to have a bigger tent? Why do you think it's important to be exposed to views that are not like yours or that you don't necessarily have to have a visceral reaction against? Right. Yeah. And, and you're right. This is a huge, this is a pressing issue for journalists, right? Because so much of the content that's being shown is uh, decided by the mysterious algorithms of Facebook. And like you said, Instagram, Twitter, um, and a lot of their motivation is to, yeah, feed you content that's going to confirm your biases often, but also, um, they, they, they want to incentivize you to spend money, right? So, you know, Mm -hmm. this, if you're a writer and you got a Facebook page, um, it'll show your, your post to like, 10 people and then it'll say, Hey, boost this post. Right. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's Show a lot to of hundred. Yeah. To a hundred. Right. Uh, some kind of modest, uh, sort of game. Um, and so, yeah, I worry about that. I think what journalists and, and publishers have to find a way to do is somehow sidestep these mammoth, um, tech companies that, that I'm not saying that they're, you know, sinister or anything, uh, maybe sometimes, but they have their own motivations, right? They're in the, mm-hmm. the business of delivering audiences to advertisers. Okay. Let's just be honest, right? Yeah. That's what they're about. So often that's going to clash with the, the, the objectives and goals and mission of, um, ministries, publications, and we have to find a way to kind of sidestep these guys and be able to go directly to readers. Uh, but of course that is very difficult because if you don't, if you don't go through these social media, uh, platforms, how does your article go viral? How does your message get out there? Um, and so that's a live debate and it'll be an interesting one to see in the days ahead. How do you navigate that when you were the editor of a print journal? I mean, everybody lives and dies by their metrics, right? Pastors right. live and die by attendance. That series really seemed to resonate. This one didn't. But like in an analog publication, in an actual magazine, I mean, I'm sure you'd look at the mailbag. It's like, really enjoyed that article by XYZ last month. But did, did you even care about that? Like how did you know you were connecting with your audience? Yeah, we cared. But I'll tell you what, compared to online publishing, it was like yeah. playing darts in the dark, right? You, okay, yeah. you, kind of, you put articles out there and you kind of usually have an idea, oh, this is a stronger one perhaps. And you, like you said, yeah, you open up the mailbag, of course, not maybe literally, but you get an email. Yeah. Um, oh, hey, that seemed to resonate. That seemed to strike a chord. Um, but, and then that is one of the benefits of online publishing. It's immediate. You get that reaction 
through email, but also online, you can respond to things in real time. You can address things that happened yesterday or the day before rather than, you know, being on a a quarterly or annual cycle. Uh, So it certainly has benefits, especially seeing what resonates with readers and having that interaction. So that's one of the really enlivening good things about online publishing as opposed to the print. What was the hardest part of the shift for you from print to digital? The hardest part was just having to reinvent yourself a little bit, right? So when you got people, and this is, I came up in the print world. I edited a magazine called New Man before that. That was, that's what I knew uh, how to do. And of course, when you're doing a print publication, your articles tend to be longer, maybe two or 3,000 words. And I love those long reads, as we call them now online. We used to just call them articles. <laughs> now they're long reads. Um, because of course, online, you want to stick to the 800, 1200 word format because people's attention spans have really shrunk. Um, so yeah, just having to reinvent yourself, think differently about content, even how you title an article, right? It used to be like you could get all cute and cryptic, um, maybe have a cool literary illusion in a title. Now you're thinking about SEO, right? Search engine mm-hmm. optimization. How are people going to discover this? Um, and, and also, and this is where it can get a little dangerous because it kind of tips you towards maybe more controversial content. Because if it is, even if it's a good article, but it doesn't have a lot of sizzle, that really hurts its chances of taking off online, right? And going viral. Of anybody reading it. And, of and anyone I, reading it other than your mom and a few followers. <laughs> I share with my team all the time, and I hate this, but negative headlines, positive articles. If you look at the formula that I follow, if, if you're like nine ways to become a better human being, people aren't going to read that. If you're like nine traps to avoid that will keep you out of the ditch. I don't know. I'm just making that up. Uh, but you see, you see the difference. I want yep. to be a positive voice, but yeah. that, that like numbered list, the how to the, that headlining is just because otherwise nobody reads your stuff. Yeah. And that's okay. I really do think so. I mean, you can go too far down that road and get all clickbaity. Oh, yeah. Like Super one weird trick this uh, Illinois mother discovered that, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, yeah. but I think people are getting wise to that, but you're right. Like putting a number in the title, making it a little bit negative, like you said, even if the article's positive. So all of those things, just a new skill set. Um, but it's just, Hey, that's how human psychology works, right? When it comes to what attracts our attention. I think the ultimate thing though, is what are you actually giving people at the end of the day? Are you yes. being one of those voices, just tearing other people down, igniting controversy just for the sake of outrage and making a quick buck or getting some attention. We see this a lot online, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Or are you actually, you know, helping people and and showing people love and truth and 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 being intentional and thoughtful about the the resources you're creating? And that's the challenge for all of us, whether you're a journalist or just online uh, or in ministry. Uh, that that's a perennial challenge that we all have. Uh, what's the best part of the shift to digital? Hmm. Well, I think what I said was, and that is the, the immediacy of it, right? Mm. The being able to connect with people in real time and, and seeing them respond to an article. Um, and yeah, I mean, I get, I get messages all the time about things I've written usually. Um, and that's incredibly gratifying. You know, this, right? When you, uh, I've, I've published an op-ed before and the next day you open your, your email and you have 50 or 60 messages from people telling their story and man, that's, that's exciting to me. Yeah. Um, 
You know, it's not just, I mean, I, I joke that, you know, I really don't like writing. I like having written. I think that's mm -hmm. a lot of writers. Um, it, it's, it's painful and difficult, uh, but that's the payoff, right? Is you're connecting with people, uh, hopefully you're helping them and then you're hearing their stories and you're making friends. I can't count how many people, you know, I've interacted with through something I've written or edited, uh, met them online. And then eventually we kind of cross that barrier where we actually meet in real life and have coffee and become friends. And that's always gratifying. So I, it's not all bad. It's not all bad, the, the whole online no, thing. No, and I think you can make the argument that the internet is a democracy in the same I, way that getting published was a big deal. Like, how do I ever get my article in a leadership journal or Christianity today? Now, and I mean, I did this a few years ago. You start your own blog, people show up. You can start your own podcast out of your house, listeners show up. And, and it's democratized and given voice to people who maybe didn't have a voice in the old system. So yeah. the uncurated really opens that up in, in fresh ways, which in some measures is very exciting. Yeah. So like now, you know, my day job, I'm, I'm at Moody Publishers as an um, acquisitions editor. We used to be the gatekeepers in publishing, right? If you oh, wanted yeah. to get a book in people's hands, you got to come through us. Well, the number one outlet, you might have heard of it, Amazon.com. You know, you can go directly and put your book. You can self-publish a book, put it on Amazon. Um, so you're right. It's had this incredible democratizing effect on the publishing world. And I think that's good. It's exciting, man. If you've got great content and something to say and you're determined enough to actually learn how to get your message out there, it's wide open. Uh, there aren't any excuses anymore, even though, yes, of course, it's a lot of hard work to do it. So your acquisitions editor at Moody Publishing right now, which is a, a fun job. Do you want to just because I, I, want, I want to go down that road because I get asked all the time, how how do you get published? Because I've had I'm working on my fifth book and, you know, they've been published and everything. Um, but I'd love to pick your brain on that. So just so people who may not be familiar with what an acquisition editor for a major publisher does, what do you do in that yeah. job? Kind of like it sounds, you know, I am not the kind of copy editor diving into the manuscript, ripping it apart kind of guy. I do a little bit of that. But my main job is to evaluate ideas and proposals and decide what we're going to publish. And I'm not the, the only one. There, scout, other, so to speak. there you go, man. It sounds a little <laughs> grandiose, but I'll take yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that I'm, I'm in the world of ideas and words and I'm evaluating. And of course, there's a few aspects to it. You're looking at the idea. Is this idea fresh? Is it helpful? Is it does it align with our kind of values as a publisher? Um, and then the, there is the dirty word platform, right? So you mm. do have to think, okay, well, who's listening to this person? Uh, not that you have to be some mega star celebrity or mega church pastor or something, uh, but we do take that into account. Um, and then the execution, can this person write? If the yeah. writing's beautiful, man, you got a chance for sure. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I spend my days doing. Um, and I tell people, you know, it's not as hard as it used to be. I don't think because some people, and this is, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, don't send it to the kind of general account, find someone like me. Everyone's discoverable now online and hit them up. You know, <laughs> I got a book deal um, once just with a direct message on Twitter. So, I mean, you can, really? you can contact. Yeah, that's a whole story, but yeah. Um, uh, so you can, you can find everyone, you can contact them directly. Um, as long as you're not, you know, totally being a, a pain in a past and just inundating mm. them with messages. Uh, but yeah, if you initiate a conversation, hit them with a quick pitch, you never know where it'll go. So yeah, that's my job. It's really fun. Love ideating, working with authors to refine their ideas. Uh, and then of course it's gratifying to see it come to fruition in publication and get out there and hopefully help people. And, and ultimately like my, my area is kind of church leaders, right? That's who I'm acquiring books for. Um, and so I see myself 
pastors, man, that's that's the trenches. That's the front line. I'm kind of the support staff helping them out. So I'm just glad to be part of the team. <laughs> we had uh, my agent, Esther Federkevich, who I'm sure you know on the yeah, show not before. Personally, but no, she, yeah, Esther's yeah. amazing. And she yeah. gave her criteria for what it takes to be published. I would love to know yours. So you're looking at dozens of manuscripts, ideas a month. What What is your little checklist? It's like, yeah, okay, we're going to take this seriously or we're going to publish it. What are you looking for today? Yeah, well, like I said, you know, writing ability, first of all, uh, a good idea. And that that's maybe sounds easy, but it isn't. Because a lot of yeah. people, they say, listen, I, I drew, I, I got this book idea. What is it? Uh, I want to write a book about community. Wow, okay. There are a lot of those, and that's a great uh-huh. topic. Man, you got to home in on something a little bit original or counterintuitive. And often it means mining your story if something interesting or unexpected has happened in your life and seeing what comes out of that, right? Um, because especially in my space with church leaders, it's so aspirational. So if someone's going to pick up a book on preaching, if, if it's from Tim Keller, yeah, I want to I, I want to read yeah, that yeah. book. I kind of want to be Tim, Tim Keller. Tim's going to get most of his ideas published if he wants to at this I think point, so. right? I think so. Tim, if you're listening, hit me up. We, we'll, we'll, we'll think about publishing your book. <laughs> we'll do a deal. <laughs> we'll do a deal. Um, so yeah, if, if it's sort of one of those big topics, man, you got to get a little more refined and, and original in the idea, uh, and that'll give you the best chance. So uh, let, let's take community as an example. Because I hear right. this all the time, right? And on the one hand, I'm thinking, you know, I write in the leadership space and you could you could sit there and say, well, I want to write leadership books. It's like, well, that's all taken. Like, <laughs> you ever heard of, but it's kind of like diet books, right? Like they continue to be bestsellers, exercise right. books. It's not like, oh no, there's already a diet book. There's already a cookbook. There's already an exercise book. You know, it, there seems to be an endless amount of appetite for that kind of stuff. So, you know, the key is, no, this is going to be all keto or this is like coconut oil only or, <laughs> you know, whatever your particular angle needs to be. So what would you say to somebody who who has an idea? How do they refine it and how do they make it stand out? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think the key is to identify something that's slightly counterintuitive, right? That's not so obvious because you're right. These are evergreen topics, we call them, right? Leadership, I don't know, community, you name it, uh, marriage books, you know, um, that that continue to be popular because they really touch a felt need that people have, that um, you know, something that they care about. So the key is to find something counterintuitive, uh, something that isn't like, completely obvious. And then of course you can go too far down that path. You don't want to get gimmicky either, right? It's like, right. oh, I've got this cool acronym and it's and it's the only way to think about this topic. Um, but really often the best books I've seen um, are ones that grow out of people's personal experience. Often something they learn the hard way, right? Through a crisis in their life, through, through a moment where they realize, man, something's got to change. I got to tackle this differently. Um, and, and out of that often grows something really profound and unique that they can contribute to the wider conversation. So thinking carefully about your life experience, what you can contribute to the conversation usually yields a pretty good idea. Okay, so you got to be a good writer and editors can help, but you have to have some raw skill there. And right. then you've got to have a, an idea with maybe a counterintuitive angle or at least a fresh angle that's going to make it stand out in the field. And you mentioned platform. How yep. important is that? Yeah, well, I mean, we're we're kind of a boutique publisher. We're not one of the yeah. big ones. And so we I feel like one of the things I love about my job is that I don't have to just go after the next, you know, 
Christian who is on a reality TV series and is super right. popular or something. I yeah, can, yeah. you know, platform yeah. isn't as important to me, fortunately. Um, and yet, it, yeah, it obviously plays a role. The main thing is that are you actually connecting with people already? So I talk to a lot of people. They say, Drew, I want to write a book. I'm like, awesome. What's going on? They say the idea. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it isn't. I say, have you written an article? No, no, I don't want to write articles. How about blog posts? No, no, I'm not into that. I just want to write a book, right? And as a publisher, of course, you look at that and you go, well, hey, first of all, you need to get some reps in, man. Like you need to write a little mm-hmm. bit and, and and just to hone the craft. I don't want to go to the gym. I just want to run a marathon. Exactly. Yeah. It's the whole yeah. kind of, you know, I don't know, walking before you run, crawling before you walk kind of idea, right? Um, and then on top of that, it enables you to kind of start to connect with an audience because if you come to me and you say, yeah, I've published these articles, I've got this blog, people are coming and, and reading it and engaging with it. Your, your ideas are field tested. You're showing that you can already connect with people and that's really valuable to a publisher. And it's not just because we're greedy and we want to make a lot of sales or something and we're going to mine your audience, but it just shows that, hey, this person already has success in getting their ideas out there. And it's resonating with an audience, uh, and that's very promising. Uh, so yeah, don't don't despise the small beginnings. If you're an aspiring mm-hmm. author, uh, definitely uh, you know do the blog, do the articles, um, and then work up to a book length project. I wrote, I would say hundreds, uh, at least a hundred anyway, articles before ever even thinking of writing a book, um, and that should really be the normal trajectory. Hmm. Okay, that's good to know. Anything else for getting published, Drew? Yeah. I mean, be persistent, obviously. I mean, you've heard the horror stories, the rejections and everything like that. It's really not personal. I have to do that all the time. That's like half my job is rejecting people. Um, but yeah, don't get down. I remember at the outset, I was so devastated by a rejection. And it's like, oh man, I'm, I'm a total loser. I obviously have nothing to say. And you, you kind of go through this whole self-loathing process that is totally yeah. unnecessary because man, it's a numbers game <laughs> in part. So just be persistent, hang in there, you know, keep going back to the drawing board, working on the ideas, honing your craft. Uh, if and and not, not to get too spooky and spiritual about it, but if you feel that God's placed a call in your life to communicate His truth to people, you know, honor that calling, stick with it, don't get discouraged. Question for you: I don't know whether you're comfortable answering it or not, or whether it's answerable. But like, is there a minimum number if you get published by a you know traditional publisher like Moody is? Is there a minimum number you have to sell? And I realize you have major titles and then you have boutique titles and the whole deal. But like, if it's like, if it doesn't sell X number of copies, then it's not profitable for us. Like right. is there a certain level, like what is success? Because right, you, you look at, you look at what happened in traditional journalism and subscription numbers are plummeting to the point where it's not viable. So what is a viable book? What's sort of the minimum viable product these days in publishing? Yeah, no, happy to talk about that. It is difficult to, you know, cite any specific numbers because every project is so different, right? And so if it is, yeah, a a very well-known person with a strong record of sales um, and you've given a big advance to the project and invested a lot of marketing dollars, of course, success for that project is going to look very differently than a first-time author with a modest advance, right, Um, recouping those numbers. Um, I will tell you, uh, I hope this isn't privileged information. I don't think it is. Um, Most books do not earn out their advance, okay? Okay. So the publishing business model is, man, we're going to gamble on a lot of books. 
Some are going to pay off big time and they're going to cover the losses on the other ones. Uh, And not that the ones that don't make back their advanced dollars are, you know, abysmal failures because they may have had a really important mission. Um, but that's kind of the business model. So our yeah, girl, yeah. wash your face subsidized. <laughs> I don't know who published that, but it subsidized <laughs> right. an awful lot of books, right? Yes. I think that's Thomas Nelson. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and for us, our best selling book by far is the love language, uh, book by Gary, oh, you Chapman. Have Gary Chapman. Yeah, you bet. And he's been uh, on this show and he says, is it 12 million copies now or something? Oh, it's got to be in that range. I don't even know. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, and, he and shared that. And it just keeps going, as you know, and it's kind of entered that space where it's like people that haven't even read the book know what the five love languages are. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's been a tremendous success, and we're grateful for for authors like that. And it enables us to kind of roll the dice on new folks as well. Um, but on, on the low end, like is it 5,000? They say the average book sells 500 copies. Is that even true, or is that just an urban myth? Okay, so what I've read is the average first-time book sells 1,900 copies. That's through a conventional publisher, okay? Um, The average self-published book sells in the hundreds. Um, And I think the average book is three, 4,000. So, yeah, 5,000 actually is that number. I mean, that's not a great success, but it's also, you know, for a small publisher, it's like, okay, got a little bit of traction, uh, for me, the more exciting thing is when you look a year or two after a book and it's still clipping along, it means it kind of got into orbit. It, it attracted enough readers that are now recommending it to their friends. And it's kind of, you know, has a life of its own where the publisher isn't propping it up anymore. Uh, and so that, yeah, to me, that's the real success. You know, you can have a huge push out of the gate and move a few copies, but if it just dies after that, uh, the book hasn't really taken on its own life. Yeah. You need a long tail. On long it for tail. Sure. There it is, man. You know the lingo. <laughs> well, it's it's I I love studying this stuff. Um, question for you: How and then I want to get to your book, but how much of that is on the author and how much of that is uh, on the publisher? Because man. that is the question, right? People ask that all the time. They're like, "Well, why don't I just self-publish?" And five thousand copies doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think that's actually five thousand people parting with nine to twenty-five dollars to order something. Uh, like that's that's like that's done one sale at a time. That is a staggering Huge. amount of people who have bought your book, let alone twenty five thousand or hundred thousand or fifty thousand or whatever. Like right. you know, when you realize no, that's one sale at a time. How much of that is on the author and how much of that is on the publisher? Yeah, great question. Well, and first of all, to you know, the question of sales and, and I think you point out something great and that is even when a book sells four or 5,000 copies and people, I, I remember with my first book, Generation X Christian, um, I, I remember the initial, you know, I think it was after a year, it had sold five or 6,000 copies. And I remember getting it all down in the mouth because, of course, every author thinks their book's going to blow up and be the next big thing. Talking to my wife and I'm like, oh, man. And she's like, are you crazy? Imagine putting five or 6,000 people in a stadium and these people yeah. have all at least potentially read your book. That's pretty cool. You know, why are you getting down about that? And and, and it, there is that tendency, I think, of authors to make every uh, a book um, a referendum on their self-worth. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, man. Um, and so but no, I needed a, a little check because, yeah, that's and or, or if it's even a thousand or two thousand. Think of the lives that are being impacted. That's huge. Um, so, yeah. And, and it's changing again when it comes to who's ultimately responsible for making it work. I tell authors, listen, you finish writing a book, you're half done. Now comes, you got to get out there and pound the pavement, especially if you're not famous, right? 
Um, you got to do interviews. You got to dial in favors with friends. You got to uh, write articles on the topic to get the word out. And I really had a, a mindset change myself as an author thinking this is part of the ministry of the book. This isn't ancillary or, oh, oh no, I got to do this. What a pain in the butt. I'm not being paid for this part of it. Hey, listen, if it if you don't do that, it's the tree falling in the forest, right? <laughs> if people don't encounter your book, uh, why did you write it? So anyway, to answer your question, it's a mix, right? Because the, the publisher certainly does a lot. Uh, what most people don't realize the publisher does is a huge benefit is that we have sales uh, people traveling the country, selling it, it into places that maybe you couldn't get it into, right? So yeah. Lifeway, of course, which their physical locations are closed, but Barnes & Noble and places like that. Um, and then, of course, we got marketing. So it's it's really nice to have that collaboration. At the same time, I don't look down on self-publishing, man. Some There's some amazing success stories out there, and it can actually be a very profitable enterprise if you can make it work, even though it's a slog. I heard a story in a podcast this past week, which was really interesting, guy talking about working with Will Smith. And apparently, I think it was when Men in Black first came out, Will was just kind of, that was his first big movie or one of his first big movies. And like they finished shooting it and uh, I forget who the other star they approached in the movie was to go and do promotion for it. And the other guy's like, no, nah, that's not in my contract. I got paid to act. I didn't get paid to go to these premieres. And Will's like, I'll go. And so the movie studio put him on a plane and flew him to like Portugal and to France. And he would go to all these countries and all these openers and screeners and do all these interviews. And his career took off. And oh, the next time it came to casting um, a star, the studio said, well, look at how hard that Will Smith hustles. Like he did all mm -hmm. the interviews. He, he jumped on a plane. We are going to cast him and we're going to give him a big fee for working on this movie. So it's one of those things where <laughs> I love that. I've heard a lot of authors and listen, we have hustled. Like you've got a book, I've got a book. And you know, you're like, do I really want to do one more interview on this? We can't <laughs> right. do them all, but you know, it is. And, and if you have a message that you believe in, why wouldn't you share that with the world? Like, I love Absolutely. reading, the, you know, on Didn't See It Coming, my last book. Yeah. We were sharing stories today at staff meeting of just people who wrote in who had read the book and like, wow, that's where I was. Here's where I am now. Thank you. Like, that's just exciting. It really is. Yeah, yeah. No, you may, you may want to add that. I was preaching. No, I love it. You're right. That's what I'm going to tell um uh, writers now be like Will Smith, man. If he's not like too Will big Smith. a deal to get out there and pound the pavement, <laughs> that's I think he's on the true. Lewis Howes podcast with uh, Mark Manson. Although oh, he, cool. he titles his book in really interesting ways these days. So there you are. <laughs> um, so your latest book, speaking of which, is on self control, which is such an easy concept to understand. And a tough one to master, as they say, if knowledge was the key to success, we'd all be billionaires and have perfect abs. <laughs> Doesn't work out that way. Why do you think self, why'd you pick self-control and why is that one such a tough one to wrestle down in your view? Right. Yeah. Well, I didn't, it isn't the sexiest topic. I'll say that right off the bat. <laughs> I think um, these days self-control has a bit of a bad reputation because people they realize they may have room to grow in this area, right? But at the same time, it's like, ugh, it's kind of boring and confining. They think of it that way, which is too bad. Uh, I wish I could say I was drawn to the topic uh, purely out of academic interest. Uh, <laughs> but the truth is, this is an area that I've struggled in. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's not that I'm, I was out there doing anything especially sinister. 
but I just realized that when it came to a lot of things I wanted to do, uh, both spiritually and just kind of physically, uh, you know, I just wanted to read my Bible every day and yet seemed unable to do that. Pray regularly. Uh, I've started more diets and exercise regimens than I can count, right? Yeah. Um, and just doing that, and I think that's a lot of us, right? Doing that over and over again, seeing yourself fail. I realized that, like you said, the problem wasn't a lack of knowledge. You know, I mm. knew that these things were important. Often I even knew how to do them. But what really was going on is that I lacked self-control. So I started researching on this topic, reading, of course, what scripture had to say about it, other Christian writers, and then looking at it from the scientific perspective as well. I talked to psychologists and sociologists. It was really interesting. And yeah, I just hope that what I learned, what I shared in the book is as helpful to other people as it has been to me, because it really has. Yeah, neural research is really opening up and you you share a little bit of that in the book. What did you learn about self-control and how our brains are wired? Kind of, you know, how we were created, how yeah. sin got involved with my right. self-control, right? Yeah. Um, what are you learning on that front? Yeah. Well, so much. Let's see where to start. You know, the big one of the big aha moments for me researching this topic was about willpower. So about 20 years ago, uh, sociologists in this landmark study basically discover that willpower is a finite resource, right? It's limited. It runs out. They call it the fancy word for this is ego depletion, right? Okay. So you might think that you can just do something difficult indefinitely or you can resist temptation uh, over and over again. But the truth is you get weaker as you go. Right. And study after study has borne this out. And that's just something that was like a real revelation to me. It really shouldn't have been because I'm a Christian and that's how scripture describes us as finite, fallible, weak <laughs> people. I think it's why, incidentally, in scripture, we're told to flee temptation rather than stand and fight it. Right. Yeah. You got to get out of there. You're going to you, you may be able to resist the first time, but you get weaker as you go. So um, it for me, that was that was really important because I realized, man, especially when I'm going into a difficult or, or um, tempting situation, I need to make sure I'm replenished, right? That my willpower reserves are high. So can I, can I just drill down for clarity's yeah. sake on that? Does that mean, like I've heard it said, this is why you have, you're so healthy at breakfast and by eight o'clock at night, you're diving face first into chocolate cake. That willpower is a finite resource that literally diminishes like the, the battery on your phone over the course of a day. Is that what you're talking about? That's exactly it. Right. And so okay. if you are determined to eat more healthily, yeah, you, you probably do pretty well at, at breakfast, but then you, you go to work. Uh, incidentally, it's not just, you know, resisting temptation that depletes your willpower. It's also decision-making, interpersonal yes. conflict, all of these kinds right. of things, you're right? you're perfectly composed at the breakfast meeting and by four o'clock in the afternoon, you're like, wow, I was really out of bounds. That yes. was, yeah. Okay. Exactly. While right. you're snapping and, at the kids at night. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Being a jerk to your spouse, whatever it is. And not that I'm justifying any of that. Right. No, no, no. But it does help to understand it that often it's because your willpower reserves are low. And the, the problem is we often make our plans while we're in kind of a cool state, uh, as um, brain researchers call it, a cool state where we are, re, our willpower reserves are high. And we think, oh, I'll be able to go run three miles this evening. I will definitely resist that chocolate cake at the office. Right. Uh, I won't look at that image I shouldn't too long, whatever it is, right? Because we're feeling strong. And in that moment, we probably could. But then life happens, right? All these things that drain your willpower, family life, work life, um, 
and then you're in a vulnerable state. So one of the takeaways for me is you you got to prepare. Um, actually, I love what Starbucks does on this. They have a system for helping uh, baristas deal with cranky customers. That is, they write out a script where they say, when someone says this, I will say that. So it's this kind of pre-commitment that you do so that when you're in the heat of the moment and maybe your willpower reserves are low, you don't just respond in anger or off the cuff. You have a script that you default to rather than just relying on your willpower. Interesting. So what are some of the hacks or some of the strategies that you outline on how to develop, like is, is self-control willpower, is that like a muscle? The more you work yes. it, the stronger it gets? Like how, how does that actually work? That's right. That's the good news, right? The bad news is that it, it, it's finite. It gets depleted and, and depleted rather quickly. But the good news is, and this is the, these are the metaphors that, that researchers use for this. It's like a battery, right? It draws down. But then the other metaphor they use is it's like a muscle. So like a muscle, the more you use it, the more resistance it gets, the stronger it gets. Um, and so, yeah, when you do difficult things, it, when you go out for that run rather than sitting and watching Netflix or, <laughs> you know, when you resist temptation, uh, you actually get stronger as you do that. Um, but here's the thing. At the end of the day, willpower isn't enough. You referenced John Ortberg earlier. There's a quote I love from him. Mm. He says, um, when, it, when it comes to this topic, um, habits eat willpower for breakfast. So, and what he means by that is that if, if two people are going into a situation and one of them is just relying upon willpower to do the right thing, and one has a good habit in place to do the right thing, man, bet on the habit person every single time. So here's, here's how willpower relates to habits. And I'm sorry if I'm jumping ahead a little bit, no, this is but great. you've got this precious finite commodity called willpower. The best way to use that willpower is to initiate new healthy habits that can then carry you through life. So you're not just relying on that willpower. Right. So Charles Duhigg, James Clear more recently, some great books on habit. Talk to us about habits. Like, okay, if I'm, if I'm trying not to dive into the chocolate cake, if I'm trying not to snap at the kids, if I'm trying to not look at images that maybe are harder at the end of the day than they were at the beginning of the day, or, you know, when you're just in a fatigue season, it's not necessarily on the clock, but like you haven't been sleeping properly, you're in a different time zone, you're just tired, you're depleted. How do those habits come into play? Yeah, that's where they become especially important. And I think the first thing to acknowledge about habits is just how important they are because we like to think that our decisions and our actions are the product of conscious thought, right? You imagine yourself right. kind of navigating the world and, oh, I know what I should do there. I'm going to do it there, you know. But the truth is that that's the case sometimes, but most often we're just relying on habits, and those can be bad habits or good habits. And just to define it very simply, a habit is an unconscious routine, something that you don't think about, you just slip into and do. Um, and like I said, the beauty of that, if it's a good habit, is you're not expending willpower. Like the guy who wakes up and runs five miles every morning, he's not going, okay, that's it, I gotta do this, gotta psych myself up. It's a habit, right? It's just automatic. It's like I get up, my shoes are there, I put them on. This and I go what out, I do. whether it's raining or whether it's nice out, I, I just exactly. go, that's what I do. Right. And some people might look at that and go, well, that not that kind of cheating? No, that's what character is. Character, good character is, is when your habits are, are healthy and holy. I mean, that's what we call good character, right? Hmm. It's not the person who's just out muscling sin and temptation at every turn. It's the person who's built in these positive habits 
in their life. And yeah, you referenced some of the, you know, Charles Duhigg and Atomic Habits and all these books that um, I, I dove into as I was researching this. And it was just, it was, it was really fascinating. The, the biggest principle I took away is that the best way to start a new habit is to replace um, a, a bad habit. So I don't know if you had a bad habit, say, of going outside in the morning and smoking a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you break it down. A habit has three parts. There's the the cue, the thing that triggers the the behavior. There's the routine, the actual behavior, and then there's a reward. So maybe going outside was the cue, smoking the cigarette was the routine, and the reward is the nicotine hitting your bloodstream. Well, right. if you want to get rid of that habit, maybe a good thing to do is go. You know what? I'm going to start running every morning. So now the cue is going outside, but the behavior changes, and it's going for a run instead of smoking a cigarette. The reward isn't the nicotine, it's, I don't know, the endorphins that you get mm-hmm. from the, the from running, the runner's high. So anyway, and it, it seems silly. One silly way I did this, I wanted to read my Bible every morning. I didn't want to start with social media and the cesspool that can be, which was what I was doing. But I realized I had a habit. Every morning, I'd roll out of bed, and right on my nightstand is my smartphone, and I'd reach for that first thing, and I'd be thinking, well, I'm going to read my Bible after I look at some emails and some, you know, Twitter and all the rest of it. And it you're would never down happen. the rabbit hole. And- down, exactly. And then, and then one of my kids, you know, comes into the room, the day started and it's over. I'd never get to reading the Bible. So, but understanding the habit loop, those three components, I realized, oh, that's my cue. I'm conditioned to consume content as soon as I roll out of bed. So what I had to do eventually is get that stupid phone off my nightstand, put it on the other side of the room, didn't have the courage to put it downstairs or something. Um, I, I, I dragged my big black Bible out of retirement, plunked it down on my nightstand. And now when I wake up, conditioned to consume content, I reach for my Bible instead of my phone. So silly sort of, you know, little trick that I played on myself, but I'll tell you what, it has yielded tremendous benefits. Most mornings now, I start my day with scripture instead of social media. So I count that as a win. Yeah, that's a huge win. Any other changes you made as a result of what you learned about habit and uh, uh, the brain and how we actually function? Yeah. One big thing for me is I stopped making so many goals and I'll explain what I mean by that. So one of the things that put this topic on my radar was New Year's resolutions. I love New Year's resolutions. I get all crazy every year. I'm like, whip out the the moleskin notebook and start writing them all down. And and every year I believe I'm going to do them all too. That's the amazing thing. Um, to the point where I almost get jealous of my future self because he's going to be so skinny and spiritual. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you know how this ends, right? A few weeks and they all unravel and you're back to your old self. And it was always a mystery to me. But after studying this topic, I realized, okay, the first thing I was doing wrong, I'd set like four or five goals, right? And then I come into the new year with that limited pool of willpower and it gets just depleted immediately, right? Because I'm trying to implement uh, major changes in several life areas simultaneously. It's a recipe for disaster. So the real problem with New Year's resolutions is that they're plural resolutions. If you could just pick one goal. And then when it came to the habit stuff, I realized you have to be really incremental about this. Don't go out and start and try to run an hour the first day if you're totally out of shape, right? You got to go out there and walk around your block maybe. And the important thing, though, to do is to stick with it through that 30, some people say 60-day window of Mm -hmm. habit formation. And then you cement in that habit in your life. And you want to start smaller or else you get discouraged and stop. And then once you've cemented in that new habit, then you can turn to a different area and implement another habit. So, yeah, being modest and incremental in your approach, 
um, that's been a huge, huge change for me. So consecutive, not concurrent. In other words, rather than doing five things. Small starts rather than big starts. And I realize this is counterintuitive, right? Because when you want to make change, you want to make broad sweeping changes and you want to change everything. You know, I'm going to I'm going to read my Bible for two hours every day. I'm going to go, hmm. I'm going to run. I'm going to, you know, eat healthily. I'm going to, you know, spend an hour with my kids every day, right? As soon as I come home, whatever it is. But that's actually the cruel irony is that you're setting yourself up for certain failure when you take that approach. So, yeah, consecutive one at a time. Be very modest in your original goals and and just stick through that tough period. And these aren't life hacks. I mean, habits are hard, right? Initially, you're doing something that's new, that's novel, that's difficult. But if you can stick with it through that initial window, then it can make a huge difference in your life. Were there other habits you created or other changes you made in your life as a result of uh, sort of the season where you looked into everything? Yeah, one of the the big things in the research about this is what you you probably heard of it, keystone habits, right? Yeah. Not all habits are created equal. Keystone habits are these kind of foundational practices that you have that if you do them, if they become habits, they actually exert a positive influence across the spectrum of your life. So an example of this is having dinners together as a family is a keystone mm-hmm. habit that researchers talk about because your kids' grades improve, your marriage improves, all these different life outcomes get better. Um, and so if you're, if you're selecting what habit to implement, try to get a keystone habit. For me, it was prayer. Right. And, and I'm, I'm no prayer warrior, as I found out. It's funny because through the book, I kind of journal and, and, and apply some of the, what I've learning to the laboratory of my life. And one of those things was I was going to try to pray for 10 minutes every morning. And it sounds silly, right? 10 minutes is nothing. Um, and so I'd set my alarm uh, or my, you know, the, the timer on my phone. I'd get down like a weirdo in my office on my knees and start to pray. And I remember the first time after a while, I was like, oh, something's wrong with the phone. I mean, it's been like, what, a half an hour. I get up, it'd been seven and a half minutes. <laughs> and so again, you know, it's when you're not used to it, um, it's difficult. But the reason I mentioned prayer is because it's one of those keystone habits. And this isn't just, you know, Christian devotional uh, uh, ideas. This is real research borne out again and again in study after study. If you even pray for five or 10 minutes a day, you will be more productive at work. You will eat yeah. better. You, your life will improve in numerous ways. Um, leaving the theology aside, of course, that's not the primary reason we pray. We do it to connect with God uh, and, and for other people and ourselves, but it is just a very smart thing to implement in your life. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about prayer as a keystone habit, but if you listen to what a lot of people outside Christianity are saying, it's like meditation. It's a keystone yes. habit, right? Yeah, And exactly. similar principle there. Yeah, and it's funny because I've read articles like in the New York Times by an atheist saying, hey, maybe I should start praying and going to church because I don't believe in God, but it has all these tremendous effects on your life. Um, (laughs) I don't think it works that way, but yeah. Any other keystone habits you'd recommend? Prayer, scripture reading, what else? Uh, Exercise is one. It really is. Um, Yeah, they've proven again and again, especially cardiovascular exercise exerts this positive influence. And I don't know what it is. It may just be physiological, but I think it's also psychological. You know, once you've gone and and done some exercise and then you go that later that night, you know what? I don't know if I want to eat that second donut, right? (laughs) It's like it's going to negate what I did already. um, But for some reason, it just has this positive influence across the spectrum of your life. Um, And so that's that's one. And of course, it's just good for you, too. Yeah. 
Um, you say, or you make the argument, I think, that grace gets misused to cover over a lack of self-control. Self-control is actually one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? If you want to go there, why do you think we often use our theology to excuse our lethargy, our sin? Like, talk about that for a minute, Drew. You know what? I got to say, first of all, I was amazed at the pushback I got from Christians on this topic. I could see, you know, yeah, non-Christians going, hey, listen, I don't go in for all that Bible stuff. Um, but I get Christians going, Hey brother, you got the wrong topic. We don't self-control is the wrong idea. We just need spirit control or, you know, let go and let God, uh, that kind of stuff. And I'm, and I, I said exactly what you just said. I'm like, uh, uh, it's one of the fruit of the spirit, dude. Okay. Have you read Galatians? Um, but anyway, yeah, I think sometimes the thinking goes like this, right? Grace is free. It's God's unmerited favor. He forgives us, you know, regardless of what we've done. And that's the beautiful central truth of the Christian faith. But sometimes we take that truth and we go, well, then why do we need self-control, man? I can just go and live like I want to. I can sin all I want. Um, And of course, the Apostle Paul anticipated this objection. He said, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And his answer is by no means or heaven forbid, you know, depending on your translation. That's Romans 6, right? Uh, Yeah, man, I'm never good at the addresses, but you got the right... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the right area. Well, we will hear in the comments if it's not, I promise exactly, you. Exactly, okay. we will. That's good. Someone will correct us. Um, so yeah, so anyway, right in scripture, we're told, hey, listen, you know, holiness and grace are not antithetical. Uh, in fact, they're complementary. One of the um, studies that I found fascinating when I was researching for this book was what researchers call um, the what the hell effect. Okay. Okay. And, and this was diet researchers, right? They look at people that are on a diet and say they have a small indiscretion. They eat a candy bar or something or piece of pizza. Then what follows that behavior is often a full on binge. And then there's this kind of opposite phenomenon called the fresh start effect. And this refers to the, the, the phenomenon that people's behavior improves if they perceive that they have this fresh start or a blank slate. It's why I think we make goals on birthdays and New Year's and that kind of thing. And it actually has a positive influence. And it got me thinking as a Christian, from a Christian perspective, man, we have the ultimate fresh start effect, right? When we come to God and we ask forgiveness, he adopts us into our family, you know, into his family. And that's the key in my mind to self-control, to living a healthy, holy life is to internalize the grace of God. It's not opposed to to self-control. It actually is the fuel for self-control because when we feel like we're forgiven, what follows that is better behavior, right? It doesn't just apply to dieting. It applies to sin and everything. Um, and so I think some people think, okay, I really got to beat myself up. I got to wallow in this guilt and then, that, then maybe that'll motivate me. No, it won't. It'll just get worse. Um, I'm not excusing maybe what you've done, but you need to turn to God, get that forgiveness, and that will equip you to live a life of self-control. All right, finally, as we kind of wrap up, distraction. You spend a little bit of time in the book talking about distraction. You've hinted at it already, right? You wake up, your phone's on your nightstand. Next thing you know, you're down the rabbit hole and two hours have gone by and you're not any happier for it. How do you, and I'm writing on this for my next book, which comes out next year, but how do you overcome distraction? Like what, yeah. what are some, some skills you've developed or things you recommend that really help you deal with that? Yes. No, this is huge. And incidentally, this is something that people in past eras didn't have to deal with. It's a unique challenge no, to our it is, in It is uniquely ways. intense. 
I it is, right, because we're inundated by all these distractions, mostly uh, via our screens, right? Our computers, our mm-hmm. TVs, our smartphones. And, and looking at the numbers, as you know, you're researching this, it's, it's devastating that we look at our phones for like four hours a day. We watch TV still for 37 hours a week. And the funny thing is no one would ever sit down at the beginning of the week and go, you know what? I think I'm going to pencil in four hours a day to look at my phone. And then maybe 37 hours a day to watch TV, you know, or mindlessly surf the web. <laughs> You'd mm-hmm. never plan mm-hmm. that way. And yet that's what we do week after week, month after month. So, yeah, it's a huge issue. And I talk about how so many of our vices are amplified by this as well, right? Whether it's lust, gambling, spending too much, you name it, it's all so much easier. But aside from that, we're just perpetually distracted. And that actually changes our attention span, our ability to concentrate. It has all kinds of implications for spiritual formation and discipline. So yes, all to say, incredibly important. I think we underestimate how much our phones are changing us and conditioning us. Um, And so one, a a few strategies. First of all, take a hard, clear-eyed look at your life, like throughout a week and go, how much time am I devoting to what, right? And then sort of go, okay, what do I really want to be investing in? It's probably you know, community, especially if you're a believer, uh, being with brothers and sisters in Christ, it's your family. It's, it's time in the word and prayer and, and sort of kind of flipping the script on your life and not devoting as much time, especially to the things that, that are sort of superfluous, like just surfing the web. So you got to do that. Secondly is what I have done is try to employ what researchers call a bright lines strategy. And bright line strategies, that's just these hard and fast, clear rules that you implement in your life that can really help you. Now, that may sound like legalism, but man, I think if you don't do that, tech will just crowd into every area of your life and you won't have a chance. So what does bright line mean? Yeah. What does it mean? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Let me give you an example of that. So a bright line strategy, and I'm making this up off the top of my head, but it might be, I don't look at my phone past 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. That's it. I just don't. Right. And so and, and back to our conversation about willpower, what that does is it actually preserves your willpower, because if it's 815 and you're you're kind of get that twitch to go and look at your phone, you don't have to sit there and struggle with temptation. You know, it's past 7 p.m. And so you just don't do it. Right. Or you can sit there and go, ah, man, uh, I'm speaking from experience. Ice cream is my vice. OK. You know, one of my bright line strategies I've tried to do is no ice cream in the freezer. Right. I can eat it if I go out at a friend's house, whatever. But if it's in the freezer, it's just calling to me all the time, right? So it mm. actually preserves oh, the willpower. Yeah. I'll just have a scoop. Oh, whoops, two, second bowl. Um, so yeah, if you have a bright line strategy where you just have a hard and fast rule that you don't have the ice cream in the freezer, you don't look at your phone past 7 p.m. One thing that my family has tried to do imperfectly, I'll admit, is we have what we call no screen Sunday. And mm. that's just what it sounds like, right? It's like, okay, um, we don't watch TV, look at phones. I mean, a little bit if we have to interact with someone. Uh, on Sundays. And like I said, we haven't always done it. Usually I'm the biggest violator of the rule. Um, But when we do, man, I'm telling you, it's like a little slice of heaven, right? The kids aren't watching TV. Dad's not sitting looking on his phone. We actually look each other in the eyes. We play a board game or we hang out or go for a walk and you get creative because you get bored and then you do other things. Um, that's huge. And so what it does, it just kind of, you know, to carve out those little Sabbaths in your life where you get free of all these distractions is incredibly life-giving and just wise. Hmm. Drew, anything else you want to share with us? Yeah, let me think. You know, I think when it comes to the topic of self-control, the last thing I just want to say is don't get discouraged, right? I think it's so easy if you have 
a bad habit or besetting sin, as we all do, and you, you keep falling for it over and over again, you got this track record in your life that maybe stretches back years, and it can be so easy to get discouraged. And I think there's even a spiritual element in this. You kind of hear those whispers like, this is who you are. You're never going to change, <laughs> right? Yeah, the um, voice of the enemy. Sure. The voice of the enemy, absolutely. Um, and you start listening to that and and you won't change. And I just want to encourage people, If first of all, if this is even on your radar and you're trying to change, congratulations, because that's not everyone. Um, and then second, don't give up, man. Look at scripture. I look at guys like Peter. <laughs> you know, he was just like, he was a, the poster boy for poor self-control. He had all these great convictions, but could never do them. And then he changed. And when we read about, you know, his letters and, and the epistles, he's become this pillar of the early church. He's grown in grace and godliness. People change, especially as you walk with Jesus, as you're intentional about, you know, going back to God for that forgiveness and starting over again. Don't get discouraged. Keep stumbling towards Jesus. You can actually make improvement in this area. Okay, so tell us more about the book, where people can find it and where people can find you, Drew. Sure. Well, there's this little uh, website here in the Northwest called Amazon.com. Yeah. Uh, you can, <laughs> it's available there. We have that in uh, our city too. It's amazing. You do? Yeah, Man, yeah, it's everywhere yeah. now. Amazing. So, yeah, or if you want to drop my, by my website, it's Drew Dick. Uh, my last name is D-Y-C-K.com. And you can, you know, read a portion of the book or look at some cheesy pictures of me and my family. Uh, <laughs> or if you're in the Pacific Northwest, man, I'm like 15 minutes from from Portland. Drop by. I'll take you to Powell's, the greatest bookstore on earth. We can grab it a is. coffee. It is. Isn't it? It's amazing. It's- and the book is called, just remind us all. Yes. Your future self will thank you. Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. It's a long one. Yeah. Drew, it's been a joy to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity and and the opportunity to connect with you. Well, best wishes with that willpower this summer. (laughs) And uh, I kind of just offset uh, my bad habits with more exercise, which is not really the best strategy. But I think Drew is totally right about the power of habit And hopefully you got some good tips. And that whole bit about curated content, yeah. I wonder if we're going to see a swing back in that direction. If you want some more, you can head over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 275. We've got show notes, transcripts, if you want to drill a little bit deeper, some quotes you can share on social media. And also, that is sort of the gateway into a lot of the writing I do. We have hundreds of articles on leadership change, personal growth, at kerryneuhoff.com. If you can't spell that, you can go to, because, you know, I get it. You can go to (laughs) leadlikeneverbefore.com and find everything there. And just a reminder, we got some special stuff going on this summer with our partners. ProMedia Fire, hey, maybe you can grow this summer. Like, just get your message out there. Go to promediafire.com forward slash carry. To learn more, you'll get 10% off for life. And if you're looking to communicate with your disparate congregation this summer, ServeHQ's got a brand new resource called Huddle Up. It's a communication tool for volunteers, parents, leaders, students. Super easy to use. Uh, You can try it out for free for 14 days by going to servehq.church. Next week, we are back with a fresh episode. My guest is Chris Norton, and I'm so excited. If you haven't heard of him yet, you will. Uh, He's been on People, Good Morning America, uh, The Today Show, so many other places, has a powerful story. And he talks about beating the odds in life and leadership. He was completely paralyzed from the neck down due to a football injury in college. But with strength, determination, prayer, and grit, he actually walked down the aisle at his wedding 
And he tells the story uh, next week. Here's my conversation about all things about overcoming the odds with uh, Chris Norton, an excerpt for you. She gets down on one knee and she says, Chris, look me in the eyes. And she was kind of mean about it. <laughs> so I lock eyes with her and she's a short, slender woman, short reddish hair. She has these glasses and her voice sounded like she came straight out of a Western movie. But yeah. she says, my name is Georgia. I'm from Wyoming. Do you know anyone from Wyoming? And I say, no. And I'm thinking, you know, where is this going? <laughs> then she says, well, people from Wyoming don't tell lies. And I want you to know you will beat this. You will beat this. I instantly just break down crying. I needed to hear those words so badly. And in that moment, she just completely restored my faith and hope. And it gave me the courage just to keep going. So, hey, that is next week. And I think there is a lot of people who are going to hear from Chris in the future. So uh, I'm so excited to share his story with you next week. We also have Sam Collier coming up. Ian Morgan Cron is back with all things Enneagram. Talking about succession with a team in Pittsburgh that did a powerful job. It's a wonderful conversation with Lee Kreitcher and Jason Howard. Ron Edmondson is coming up. We've also got Tim Lucas from Liquid Church, Max Lucado, Clay Scroggins, Jeff Henderson, Josh Gagnon, Gordon McDonald, Heather Zimple, Christy Wright, so many more. Man, I got to tell you, it's going to be amazing. And when you subscribe, you get it all for free. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.